0: Good morning, everybody. Are you worried about what the future holds? I mean, well, really, there's plenty to be worried about, really, isn't there, when we think about it. Uh, environmentally, there's global warming, extreme weather events, the collapse of ecosystems, the build-up of plastics in the oceans of the world and everywhere else for that matter, mass extinctions, deforestation, desertification, etc., etc. Then politically, religious and politically-fueled extremism and violence, the rise of radical, armed and militant right and left-wing political groups around the world. Socially, the breakdown of family and marriage and the progressive insanities of Gender politics and political correctness. The internet and social media and the way that these things are disrupting relationships and information transfer. Health crises associated with a globalized economy. Currently COVID-19, but before that, SARS and MERS. Swine flu, etc., etc. What next? Well, there's plenty to worry about. I guess I probably don't need to go on. We're currently looking at the book of Isaiah. And we've already noticed that for the people of Jerusalem in the last years of the 8th century BC, there was plenty to worry about. To recap briefly, the two nations immediately to their north have formed an alliance, an alliance with one purpose that purpose being to remove the king of Jerusalem and to replace him with a puppet king. And the goal thereafter, having taken over that nation, would be to mount a three-nation coalition to defeat the real enemy, the big enemy, the real worry of those times, the nation of Assyria, way off in the northeast, the new rising superpower. What to do about all of this? Well, if you were with us last week, you may remember that right in the middle of an intense discussion between Isaiah and King Ahaz, an intense discussion about politics and war and kings and desolations comes really quite mysteriously, talk about a baby, a baby boy. Then Isaiah said, chapter 3, verse 13, "Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also?' Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then this week's passage, which continues the story from last week, continues with talk about baby boys. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Shalal Hashbaz So I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jberechiah as reliable witnesses for me Then I made love to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son And the Lord said to me Name him Macha Shalal Hashbaz For before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Um, And then there's next week's passage, which continues the story from this week, which concludes with talk about a baby boy. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For for those living in darkness, for those living in gloom and distress, the gift of a baby, the gift of a baby from God is a sign and a symbol, a promise of a future, the promise of a future hope. The message of chapter 7 was a message to the house of David, that is, to King Ahaz. Do not be afraid of those two kings to your north. They'll soon be gone. Oh, but, by the way, don't trust Assyria. Form no alliance there. And chapter 8 begins with, The Lord said to me. And this phrase reappears in verse 3. And the Lord said to me, It appears again in verse 5, and the Lord spoke to me again. And then again it appears in verse 11. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me. Well, in chapter 8, the subject material is actually, the thing being discussed is the same as in chapter 7, the dark threat of the three nations, Israel, Aram, and Assyria. But the audience is different. In chapter 7, Isaiah was talking to King Ahaz about all this stuff. Now in chapter 8, the Lord God Almighty is having a private word with Isaiah about the same stuff, just the two of them. In chapter 7, the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah was for King Ahaz. Verse 9, if you do not stand firm in your faith, You will not stand at all. And as we saw in fear, the faith of King Ahaz crumbled. He made an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser III, king of the dreaded Assyrians. Chapter 8 is now, in many respects, the same message to Isaiah. Stand firm in your faith. But the difference between the two men, between King Ahaz and Isaiah, is that Isaiah does trust the Lord. He does trust the Lord. He may not necessarily understand, but he trusts. And for this reason, chapter 8 is explanation from God as to what he himself is up to. Because surely the Lord does nothing without revealing it to his prophets. And to those who have, more will be given. And they will have an abundance To those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. Once you have decided to trust God, whether or not you understand, once you have decided to trust God, he absolutely delights in sharing with you what he is up to. Jesus said, by myself I can do nothing. I only do what I see the Father doing. And he tells me what he's up to, and he shows me his work. I say only what he tells me to say, and I do only what he tells me to do, and I say it and I do it only in the way he tells me to say it and do it. Uh, That's a summary, but I have about 12 references from the Gospel of John if you want me to back any of that up. So then, chapter 8 Verses 1 to 18 that Steph has just read to us this morning record three conversations initiated by God together with Isaiah's response. And a feature of these three conversations is that they're an interesting mixture of both good and bad news, of both bitterness and sweetness. Conversation one, as we've already heard, is about a baby boy. Isaiah is told to write down the name of his next child as a witness and testimony that God foretold what would happen. The boy's name will be Macha Shalal Hashbaz, meaning quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. We can speculate on what it was like to have a name like that. <laughs> but the child is, is a sign. Before the baby even learns to talk, before the baby is old enough to say mommy or daddy, two of the kings that King Ahaz is so frightened of, King Rezin of the nation of Aram, capital city of Damascus, and Samaria to his north, these kings will be long gone, defeated by the Assyrians. And as we saw last week, that's what happened. Aram fell to Assyria in in 732 BC, that is two years later. And again we see that this child, like the Emmanuel child, functions as a sign, but functions as a sign in the rear view mirror, so to speak. Again, we see that this child will be living proof in two years' time that you were right to believe the word of the Lord through his prophet, that God had indeed spoken to Isaiah, and that God does indeed know the end from the beginning, because he's in charge, because he is Lord. Conversation 2 begins at verse 5 with, Yes, that's right, disaster. Assyria, like a river in flood, has broken its banks, and it's coming for you. And it will sweep right across your land up to your very necks. And by now, at chapter 8, we're quite familiar with this prophecy from Isaiah, which has come to us in a variety of ways. The Assyrians are coming. They will sweep across the land and leave it, a desolate wasteland. But unlike every other country that the Assyrians enter into, they won't actually defeat the city of Jerusalem. They'll besiege it, but their siege will be unsuccessful. They won't take them captive. They won't take them into exile. And all of this will happen, indeed, in the lifetime of King Hezekiah, Ahaz's son. And if you're interested, you can read detailed detailed accounts of what actually happened in the book of Isaiah, chapters 38 to 39, or in 2 Kings, chapters 18 to 20, or in 2 Chronicles, chapter 32. The Assyrians will, indeed, like a flood, sweep in, sweep out, leaving desolation. And this is, of course, terrible news. But there's a strange triumphalist tone to the whole thing which suggests that it's actually good news. For a start, the Lord is telling Isaiah straight, all this is from me. By my hand, the Assyrians are coming. We saw last week, you know, like, dog on a leash. <laughs> like bees swarming in from... It's, it's the Lord's work. It's indeed the judgment of God because his people have rejected trusting God politically depicted uh, sorry poetically depicted as the gently flowing waters of the stream of Shaloah, the spring from, from which the city of Jerusalem got its water supply because they've rejected trusting God they'll reap the torrent the flood the inundation of the Assyrians with whom Ahaz has made an alliance dissolving with fear in the face of Rezin and Pekah The coming of the Assyrians is the judgment of God, which is the triumph of God. Crucifixion is coming for the people of Jerusalem, figuratively speaking, but also resurrection. Because the good news is that the Assyrians will be destroyed. Verse 8, Emmanuel! Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For Emmanuel, God is with us. Yes, the Assyrians came in like an overwhelming flood, but they left destroyed, utterly devastated, wiped out by a plague. Spent as a fighting force. The third conversation begins at verse 11 and is the longest. Here's the bad news. God is hiding his face from his people. Verse 17. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here am I. And the children the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty, who dwells on Mount Zion. Uh, children here undoubtedly means biological children, um, but the Hebrew word for children also functions as the technical word for students or disciples. Um, we know that Isaiah, son of Amos, has at least two sons, We've met the the younger of the two today, Macher, Sha'al, Hashbaz. Last week we met the elder, the elder son, Shia, Yashub. But Isaiah undoubtedly also has children in the sense of disciples, people who follow him, who believe his word, uh, who, who, who meet together to be encouraged. And they all know that bad times are coming. Within 12 short years, Jerusalem the city and Judah the nation will go from a rich, prosperous, urbane, fashionable and sophisticated society to a desperately poor, living hand-to-mouth, lonely, desolate wasteland. And yet they also know that a refined remnant will repent, a remnant will return, a remnant will survive. These boys are signs and symbols. They are signs and symbols pointing to what a trusting response will look like. For this is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Um, Conspiracy theories, by the way, are nothing new. There have always been conspiracy theories. Uh, A conspiracy theory, what is it? Well, a conspiracy theory is an explanation for an event or a set of events in which the obvious explanation is discredited and a different explanation is proposed, one that involves a conspiracy. The covert actions of a hidden group with a secret and sinister agenda. Thus, the imagined conspirators have a political political motivation and hoodwinking the mass populace is a key part of their plan. Conspiracy theories work when they are either completely untestable or at least untestable for most people, beyond the means of most people really to discern whether it's accurate or not. And those who propagate the conspiracy theory generally feel very pleased with themselves for not being hoodwinked, unlike the rest of the unthinking, unwashed, unknowing populace. The pleasure of superior knowledge is one driver of the conspiracy theory. Historically, conspiracy theories flourish at certain times, in uncertain times, Conspiracy theories arise during periods of political turmoil and conflict. The Nazi Party of Germany and the Communist Party of the USSR depended upon conspiracy theories to justify the very worst of their policies. Conspiracy theories are often the justification for extremist views and for terrorist attacks such as the bombing of Oklahoma City by Timothy McVeigh in 1995. Conspiracy theories also flourish during health crises. During the Ebola outbreak of 2014, health workers in West African countries were sometimes attacked and killed because of a conspiracy theory surrounding that epidemic. Conspiracy theories connected to donated food led the Zambian government to reject food aid during a famine. Altogether, it is impossible to calculate how many people have died as a direct result of conspiracy theories, but it is very probably in the many millions. And that's because conspiracy theories change people's behavior. Conspiracy theories also thrive during times when a new technology disrupts traditional means of information transfer, of communication. Conspiracy theories thrived in the centuries after the printing press was invented, as the printing of pamphlets put the power of publication into almost anybody's hands. And just to point out the obvious... We live in just such an age, an age of health crises, an age of political turmoil, an age in which new technologies are profoundly disrupting the traditional means of information transfer and communication. In a um, fictional television program that I was watching on Wednesday night, a mother rebuked her son for believing a conspiracy theory And the correction she gave her son was, you know that conspiracy theories are just a way for stupid people to feel smart. She's saying something that a lot of people think, but she's not actually right. It may be that people who feel powerless or who are indeed powerless are disproportionately attracted to conspiracy theories, but actually intelligent and well-educated people fall for them too. And that's because conspiracy theories are ultimately a spiritual issue rather than an educational one. Conspiracy theories are fueled by the temptation of secret knowledge, the deliciousness of believing that you know better than everybody else. And perhaps more pertinent to Isaiah chapter 8, conspiracy theories are fueled by fear. There is a sinister element of horror to every conspiracy theory. And indeed, speaking personally in my own experiences of people trying to convert me to their own conspiratorial understanding of one thing or another, I can usually sense that the expected emotional response is fear. The speaker is usually trying to draw me into their web of fear relating just how evil this particular group of people are, or whoever that group of people might be, a real group or often an imaginary organization or society. But the Spirit said to Isaiah and his children and is saying to us here today, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one... You are to dread, biblically, to live in the holy fear of God, is to be ultimately more concerned about his good opinion and judgment than about any other opinion, judgment, or consequence. To live in holy fear is to say, in effect, and to be ready to say in a moment's notice, I don't care what you think of me, or what you say about me, or what you do to me. I will not disobey the Lord. And bad times, in many ways, force us to make a decision about who or what we actually put our trust in, who or actually we live in the fear of, whose opinion ultimately matters to us, who we really think is in charge. Therefore, with respect to God, He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. And as the New Testament reveals and sees so clearly... Jesus is the stumbling block. Jesus is the stone. Jesus is the rock that falls on people or upon which people fall. Jesus is the stone that causes people to stumble. Why is this so? Well, because everything about Jesus can and does scandalize. The nature and circumstances of his birth, the nature of his ministry and proclamation, his miracles, the claims he made about himself, these scandalized and they continue to scandalize people. And by the way, the English word scandal or scandalize comes from the Greek word scandalizo, which means to trip up or cause to stumble. That's what a scandal is. But without without doubt, the chiefest of the scandals is the scandal of the cross. His own disciples, we remember, wouldn't listen and couldn't hear about the cross. Matthew 16, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Pe- Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Well, Jesus lived his life in, in the dark shadow of the cross, knowing that the cross was his destination. He knew that all all, all through his at least all through his ministry years, he knew exactly where he was going. It was, for Jesus, an unavoidable evil, a destruction on the horizon that he couldn't go over or under or around. He just had to go through it. And he had to trust God, and he did trust God, and he did trust God even when, in agony, he forgot everything he'd ever learnt and doubted even who he himself was. And cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted And you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What what dark clouds, what dark storm clouds build on our horizon? Do you live in the shadow of a terrible evil? One that might destroy you? Jesus Christ is Lord over every single one of those things. Every single one. The scandal of the cross is that Jesus says to us, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, my call on your life is not to save you from pain or suffering or difficulty, but rather indeed, to be with you through it, to the redemption of the world. The cross is the judgment of God, as well as the triumph of God. The cross is how God does business with the world and with us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Today's text is about Isaiah making a formal decision of his will to trust God, even though he knows that he and his wife and his kids are going to live live through dark and difficult times. And then in our text, the Lord guiding him as to what trusting him will look like. When disaster strikes, most people are typically controlled by fear and they curse God because deep down they know that God is responsible and he is. For the people of God, when disaster strikes, it is an opportunity to see for ourselves that God is infinitely bigger and that Jesus truly is in command even though this awful thing is happening to me. But this only happens as we make a decision to trust him. O oh, house of Israel, trust in the Lord. He is our helper and shield. All you prophets, trust in the Lord. He is our help and shield. All you priests, trust in the Lord. He is our help and shield. All you who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is our help and shield. Amen.